the expression steady by jerks. And I found out that uh, that's either regional, where I grew up, or it's generational. I'm hoping it's regional. <laughs> but what it means, it's, uh, my dad would often answer, you know, how's things going? And he'd say, oh, steady by jerks. And that pretty well described some of the automobiles we had around our place from time to time. And it is a, a very good description of hitchhiking, which is a perfect metaphor for a healthy, growing marriage. It's progressing with frequent interruptions, but progressing nonetheless. You've maybe heard someone say, oh man, that's a marriage that was made in heaven. Got news for you. Good marriages are not made in heaven. They are made on earth over a lifetime as a couple together faces the difficulties and challenges of life. Last week, we had kind of as a sub-theme the differences that we bring into a marriage are useful to temper and strengthen each other. Together, we are more able to face life successfully because of the differences that we bring into our marriage. The sub-theme kind of for today is that the, the hard stuff that we face in life, the trials, the interruptions, the tribulations, the, the stuff is the mortar that God uses to hold together the building blocks of a healthy, fruitful marriage. Every difficulty, therefore, becomes an opportunity. Marriages follow one of several trajectories. There's the Disneyland marriage, which is based upon unrealistic expectations, immaturity, living in denial and fantasy, the lifespan of such a marriage, usually less than three years, that um, diagram should go up and then straight down because these marriages just don't last. Then there are developing marriages where there is an unconditional commitment to the, to the marriage and to the mate. It sees life realistically. It's growing in the midst of the challenges of life because they face them together. That is a, a healthy marriage. And then there is a third kind of marriage where there's an unwillingness to divorce, but also an unwillingness to live without fig leaves. So the marriage becomes little more than an arrangement. There's competition, there's conflicts, there's accusing and excusing, and there is a, an armed truce. Everybody loses. Each of these marriages could be represented here this morning. And as I said at the outset of this short series, this is not about pointing fingers or trying to unscramble the past or to stir up guilt and shame, but rather to see where we're at to go from there 
with hope. And the prerequisite of hope begins with realistic expectations. Many enter marriage believing the myth that somehow marriage, if I can just get married, that will somehow magically fix me. And then there are others who see marriage as a paradise, the white picket fence, perfect children, ample money, a vacation every year, all the bills paid, early retirement, and so on. Anybody ever experienced a marriage like that? I didn't think so. Then there's the mistaken notion that problems, the hard stuff, is what destroy marriages. Got news for you. It's selfish, immature, and stubborn people who destroy marriages. Circumstances never destroy a marriage. It's our reaction and response to circumstances that destroy marriages. The hard stuff that we encounter in marriage is the mortar that God uses, as I said earlier, to, to hold together, to strengthen the building blocks of a healthy marriage. <clears throat> in Proverbs 24.3 we read, Homes are built on the foundation of wisdom and knowledge. And Peter said to husbands, Love your wives with knowledge. It's usually translated understanding, but the idea is knowledge. God's wisdom, God's knowledge, and God's understanding communicated in the Word of God is where healthy, realistic marriages begin, endure, and end until death do us part. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the author and the creator of marriage In your love and your grace, you gave the gift of marriage to mankind, not just to procreate the human race, but, Father, to be a blessing to each of those who are a part of the institution of marriage. There is a completion that comes, Father, with marriage and and children that is a gift from you. I pray that we would understand that, Father, that it is your grace that is blessing us in the institution of marriage. Father, messages like this are out of my comfort zone. It's not an expository Bible message. And so I pray, Father, that in spite of the direct applications of your word directly, I pray that nonetheless, Father, you would use what is said to benefit, to encourage, and to strengthen our marriages in this church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this message, like the last, is not a formula or a how-to-do marriage sermon. Above all else, I want to communicate that healthy marriages are ultimately little more than two people teaming up to live out their lives in a godly lifestyle in obedience to the Word of God, rooted in the truth of His Word. My comments are going to be organized around four levels or phases of marriage. 
Marriage usually begins with ecstatic anticipation. Turn your Bibles, please, to the Song of Solomon. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. This song is about pre and marital love, premarital and marital love. Chapter 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. He's smitten. Verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting table, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with the apples, for I am lovesick. He's devastated. She's devastated. Wiped out. Captivated. Verse 8. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Ladies, can you just imagine your husband in his boxer shorts, jumping over the dresser, sidestepping the hamper, and doing a half gainer into the bed. (laughs) Landing gently beside you, his eyes focused on your eyes. I don't think so. Five words describe this phase of marriage. Intensity, lovesick, totally absorbed with each other and oblivious, oblivious to all others. Idealism, your mate is perfect in every way, beautiful beyond description. Solomon begins to describe her in verse chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair, and you have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. We'll stop at the neck. But I'm sure you'll read on. (laughs) Total disregard for any flaw. Indulgence. Whatever you want, my darling. She's watching the NFL for the first time in her life. And he has been seen following her like a puppy dog at the mall. Total indulgence. Infatuation. A feeling of happiness so extreme it's painful. What's the matter with you? I'm in love. That's the atmosphere in the Song of Solomon throughout. But there's one more word that characterizes this stage of marriage, and that is ignorance. Fact is, you don't really know, know that person. You're in love with an ideal of that person. And as it 
often happens you eventually wake up like the one fellow who said, I didn't know that puppy love could lead to a dog's life. In this first level of marriage, we tend to overlook our faults and sweep any major conflict under the rug. This stage doesn't last, nor should it, because sooner or later we awaken to the reality that our mate does have faults and we do have differences. And then, too, life has its challenges. There's hard things in life. There are bills to pay, children to raise, diapers to change, and endless responsibilities to face. That's when level two inevitably comes along. Proverbs 27, verse 15. Now this is the same guy that wrote the Song of Solomon, okay? A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind. What happened? His delight turned to disillusionment. The dating turned to debating. The romance turned to resentment. And the ideal became an ordeal. The honeymoon's over, baby. Five words characterize this phase of marriage. Dullness. Before you were married, anything you want, darling. Now it's get it yourself, buster. Appearances tend to slip, routine, complacency, boredom set in, and that is followed by disagreements, begin to clash over differences, can no longer ignore reality, so more often than not, a couple turns to fig leaves. Become defensive. Start protecting oneself. Begin to hold up the guard. Watch the rear flank. Less openness and vulnerability. Now it's accuse and excuse. No transparency. The walls are up. And following that comes the disapproval. As with Solomon, before everything she did was right, now nothing she does is right. Now it's nagging and criticizing, like the lady who said... I knew my, life, my husband was temperamental. I just didn't realize it was 90% temper and 10% mental. <laughs> Nagging, complaining, criticism. Someone said, the way to bury your marriage is with a lot of little digs. And that eventually, inevitably, leads to disappointment, disillusionment. <clears throat> I feel cheated, confused, and trapped. Did I do the right thing? Did I marry the wrong person? Did I make a big mistake? Probably not. It simply comes down to facing the real world, making mature decisions based upon God's wisdom for marriage, and choosing to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in every way, in everything. When it comes to this point in marriage, don't think that God is not surprised, because... I believe above all else, God created the institution of marriage as a place where he could exercise a little sandpaper 
and begin to chip away for God's primary purpose for our life as believers is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And there is no place better suited for our lives to have sandpaper applied and the chipping away to be done than in the institution of marriage. Well, when you get to this place, there are essentially three alternatives to choose from. First of all, divorce, breakup. More people choose this option than any other. The average length of a marriage a few years ago in America was 7.2 years. Most people in our culture, if they do get married, do so with the understanding that they will divorce and marry someone else in a few years, probably. Give up, break up, dump the bum, or the bumette, depending on the situation. That's the most commonly chosen option. Another common option is breakdown. Endure the misery the rest of my life. Internalize the anger. Make myself and everyone around me miserable. A very sad but all too common choice. Two people living in the same house, independent of each other. The third option isn't used a whole lot. It takes a lot of effort. It's painful. It requires a lot of change. But folks, like anything else in life, anything that's worthwhile isn't cheap and it isn't easy. In terms of in terms of a summary statement describing God's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge regarding marriage. We must open up, we must give up, and we must grow up. What do I mean? James said in James 5.16, confess your trespasses one to another in marriage. What he's saying is be honest. Come clean. Open up. When we are closed, we're only protecting our fragile ego. We're using fig leaves to protect ourselves, and the consequence of a closed relationship leads to further bruising and confines oneself to a life of hiding and protecting behind the fig leaves. Opening up presupposes three commitments. First, a commitment to your mate. I want to turn to Ephesians 5 again. The foundational text in the New Testament for marriage. And in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a tall order. Paul is telling us husbands, because we are the head of the home, 
we have a responsibility for the welfare of the home. And we are commanded to love our wives. Wives are never commanded in Scripture to agape love their husbands. Husbands are the ones that have received the commandment because they are responsible. They're the head of the home. And he's told us how to love as Christ loved the church. How was that? Sacrificial giving. One of the things that I think each of us as husbands have to come to, to terms with is am I going to put my wife ahead of myself in serving her, in loving her for her welfare that she might be fully successful both in life, in marriage, and in her Christian life? Am I a leader in the home? Am I loving sacrificially? Am I committed to my mate? Is she the sole focus of my emotional delight as well as my sexual fulfillment? Is she number one at all times? In many circumstances in Christian homes, no, that's not true. The guy's out to do his own thing. And uh, she can come along as she, as she wants. She's not the priority. She's not the number one priority in the marriage. Ladies, is your husband the priority? A commitment to your mate, and then a, a commitment to your marriage. I know I've, I'm sure I've shared this. I've shared it many times. My experience 48 years ago, in three weeks, as I stood behind the door to the platform where I was going to watch my wife walk down the aisle, I turned white. A cold sweat broke out. Not because I was nervous about the ceremony. Man, that was a piece of cake. All I had to do was walk out there and say, I do, and kiss. That was, that's easy. Uh, no sweat there. But I had been taught the truth of Ephesians 5 long before I got married. And I recognized that I was making a commitment. I was putting my integrity and my character on the line when I said, I will, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, for better or for worse. I was placing voluntary restrictions and commitments upon responsibilities upon myself, and there was no escape clause. This was until death do us part. And I realized the magnitude of what I was doing, and I almost passed out, because I was committed to my marriage once I shared those vows. A commitment to your mate and a commitment to your marriage and a commitment to your master, your maker, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we love and as we honor and respect, we do it ultimately in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and honor to him. But we do it then to each other in response to our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Open up and then give up. <clears throat> Let all bitterness, anger, evil, malice be put away. What do you give up? All those ways of reacting which just plainly don't work. The things which tend to increase the problem. Those attitudes which frustrate the problem. 
I've shared some of these things before, but the old silent treatment, give it up. That's immature, that's selfish, and many times it's mean, it's vengeful. Be mature, engage. Threatening to walk out, using the D word, we talked about that previously, sarcasm and ridicule, and then blame. As long as a person is spending his time fixing the blame, he can't fix the problem. To blame is to be lame. Trying to change your partner. I'll just try to improve him or her. New improved spouse made in the image of me. Somebody observed that at a marriage ceremony, first you have the aisle, then at the end of the aisle is the altar, followed at the end of the service by a hymn. Aisle, altar, hymn. That's often the way it becomes after marriage. I'll alter him or her, depending on the situation. And I want to add another one here, control. Nobody likes to be controlled. You can't love somebody when your hand is closed. I'm a bird. If you have your hand around a bird, uh, he's controlled. You love that bird and you have an open hand, he could fly away at any time. He's free. But when it's control, we all react to that. Men, many times you try to control your mate with anger and intimidation. Stop it. Ladies, you try to control your husband with manipulation. Stop it. Love each other with an open hand. Don't try to control, to have preconceived outcomes. Just love, honor, respect. Obey God in your roles in marriage. Open up, give up, and grow up. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him. I'm convinced that the overall greatest need in most marriages can be summed up in one word, maturity. Spiritual maturity that is committed to your mate, your marriage, and your Lord. There are just far too many selfish, immature people getting married who have unrealistic expectations and who are too immature to be responsible to their marriage vows. Change will come if we're willing to be responsible to our marriage. But change is rarely instant. It's rarely dramatic or radical. And it takes effort, time, and most of all, patience. And that leads me to say, love is patient. Open up, give up, grow up, and I want to add, slow down. Patience. Most men enter marriage with the idea that they're going to fix their wives. Men, your wife does not want to be fixed. She wants to be heard and affirmed. And ladies, what you want from your husbands is intimacy oneness. You want him to open up his heart to you, and you want to be able to open up your heart to him. Men, the ladies have it right. That takes time, so slow down.
Now that brings us to the fourth phase of marriage. When we choose to break through, we enter to level four. Now before you throw stones at me, is there such a thing as marital bliss? Yes. But contrary to Disneyland theology, marital bliss is not a destination. It's a lifestyle. It's a journey. It's not without problems. It's not without difficult things to face. It's not without hard stuff. I want to read a passage, uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to read just three or four verses there with this whole idea of patience. In verse 4 we read, love is patient. That's probably what your translation says. Mine says, suffers long. The old King James probably says, long-suffering. The word there is macrothumia, long wrath. In other words, it takes a long time before you respond in anger. That's what the word means. And it's a word that is only used when it comes to having patience in relationship with other people. There's another word translated patience. It's hupomono, under, to remain, to remain under circumstances, to be patient with the dog, with the dishwasher. There's a patience with things, and there's a patience with people. And the word is, it takes a long time before one would become angry. That's the idea. It's patient. It is kind. It does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up because it's focused on the object of the love. Does not behave rudely, is not self-seeking, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Five words that describe this kind of relationship in a marriage It's an acrostic that spells the word trust. There's various levels of trust. There's a trust that's earned over time because it is uninterrupted faithfulness. The T is tenderness. You're gentle, not judgmental with each other, careful of one another's feelings, tender with each other's egos, Seeking to build your mate in whatever way you can. Never in competition. Always realizing that you're on the same team, the same boat. It's no longer I and me, it's we and our. One flesh, partnering. Responsibility, understanding, and responsibly fulfilling the biblical role for your part in marriage. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's maturity. And it begins with you, men. Ephesians 5, loving your wives as Christ loved the church. 
understanding. Know and accept your differences. Know and accept your differences. Don't try to change your mate. Accept them. In the long haul, it's your differences that will make your marriage strong. And in 1 Peter 3, 7, um, Peter said that the men, the husbands, were to love their wives with understanding. The word there is gnosis. It just means knowledge. And I believe what Peter was really saying is that husbands, know your wife in such a way that you can love them as they need to be loved. Not just generic woman, but your wife in particular. Study her. Get to know her that you might know who she is and what she needs is that her needs are that you might love her as she needs to be loved. And I want to say to you guys, your wife already knows you far better than you know yourself. Probably. Husbands, learn, study, know, and then love your wife as she needs to be. Together, you are joint heirs of the grace of life, Peter went on to say. Security. A mature love has a security that says, no matter what happens, we will make it. It's not if we make it, it's how are we going to make it. You aren't threatened by disagreements. When an argument comes, you don't think, oh no, our marriage is over. Immaturity. Security is the result of unconditional commitment, which faces and goes through the hard things. And a couple of things I want to add to this, uh, men and women who are married, the best gift you can ever give to your children is to love their mother or their father. As you love each other, you are building an emotional stability and foundation for your children that nothing else can give. Another thing I I feel to say is I hear married couples from time to time say, my kids have never heard us argue. That's sad. Your kids should hear you argue and face differences and settle them and move on. You're teaching them that problems are reality and there is a way to go through and come to an agreement that is a part of a a gifting to a child that I think is very important. And I just want to say uh, also, I I don't know where to say this, but I'm going to say it here. This whole thing of uh, security, understanding, tenderness, and so on. The biblical roles are real clear. And we are to love and, and patience and all that I've been saying. But that does not mean that if your mate is unfaithful to you, he's broken the covenant through sexual immorality. And it's repeated. You have every right, biblically, to separate yourself from that person, to divorce him. And the divorce is permissible, biblically, because with it comes the right to remarry. 
And there is a second. Honoring and respecting your husband, ladies, does not mean he has a right to physically abuse you. When physical abuse is present, get out of there for your own protection and the protection of your children. The Bible also gives the right of divorce with abandonment, sexual immorality and abandonment. And when a husband is beating on his wife, he has abandoned her. But just for practical reasons, you need to separate yourself. So many times I have seen women who believe that they were required to remain in an abusive situation like that. The Bible does not require that. Wisdom would be to protect yourself in that situation. Finally, truthfulness. Ephesians 4.15 says, We are to speak the truth in love. Love is honest, and it speaks truth for the purpose of building. It opens up and speaks up in love. Now, I realize that as I've talked today and in the last three weeks, we have every kind of marriage represented here. Jesus Christ can help you wherever you are, if you're willing to let him. But as I think I've said many times, there are no formulas, no quick fixes, no magic solutions, no instant cures. And as important and as critical as God's biblical principles for a healthy marriage are or is, God's principles will do us no good because we will not be able to live by them unless we have God's enabling power. That's called grace in the Christian's life. That enables us to be obedient to the Lord and then to be able to do, as he said, as we live out our Christian faith with our sister or brother in Christ in marriage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the instruction manual that has taught us how we can have a fruitful life together in the bond of holy matrimony. I pray, Father, that wherever we might find ourselves in our marital union today, I would pray that we would look to you in hope, eager to to live our lives in obedience to your word. It all comes back to that. Help us, Lord, to make those commitments and choose your enabling power, the power of the Holy Spirit within, to live in obedience and to love our mate, to love, honor, and respect one another. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.